Our administration's first and most important responsibility is keeping Marylanders safe. And while there is not yet any immediate public health emergency here in our state, uh, let me repeat that, uh, there is no uh, immediate public health emergency here in Maryland. Uh, based on the latest guidance from the CDC and our federal partners, uh, we want our citizens to know that all levels of government are working together proactively and taking every possible precaution to respond to potential threats of public health. The new coronavirus, officially called COVID-19, is on many people's minds. The disease has infected more than 80,000 people globally, with approximately 3,000 deaths. The majority of the cases and deaths are in China. However, there are now more than 60 cases in the United States, with six deaths. On Thursday, Governor Larry Hogan held a press conference to inform Maryland residents about the state's preparedness. I'm Heather Mangilio, and this is Frederick Uncut. As of March 2nd, six Maryland residents have been tested for the disease. Of the six, five tested negative, with one test pending. There are still a lot of questions, so I asked our local health officer to talk about the disease and what people need to know. Yes, hello. I'm Dr. Barbara Brookmeyer. I'm the director of the Frederick County Health Department and the health officer for Frederick County. I want to assure Marylanders that our state is taking every precaution when it comes to the coronavirus because our highest priority is keeping our residents safe. While we are hoping for the best, uh, we are also actively planning for the worst. So that was what Governor Hogan said on a Thursday press conference. Is that still the case? Are we prepared for the worst? That is still the case. And so early on, so say more than a month ago, we weren't exactly sure what direction this might take and whether it would be something where the virus was easily contained um, or whether we would start seeing spread beyond just people who are travelers and spread throughout the community. And with what's happened over this past weekend and the weekend before, where we've seen internationally as well as now in the United States, where there has been some limited spread from person to person in the community, where it's not exactly clear whether they had any contact with somebody who had been a traveler to those countries, where there were ongoing outbreaks or not. All right, perfect. So I guess just to start with the coronavirus, which is called COVID-19, or the specific um, actual name for the virus, which is SARS 2 um, Can you tell me a little bit about what we know about this disease now that it's been around for about a month? Yeah, so unfortunately, we don't know much about it. But what we're learning each day is sort of an exponential growth. And it was initially referred to as a novel coronavirus, novel meaning new, and coronavirus uh, describes the way that virus looks um, under, say, a microscope. Um, and it's new to humans. We don't know if it's new to other animals, uh, but it's certainly new to humans. And that's what makes us concerned in the public health field, is that any time that there's a virus that's new to us, that means our bodies haven't developed a specific immune response or the immune defenses specific to that virus. And if we don't have ready-made 
immune cells specific to fighting off that virus, then if we become infected, we're more likely to become ill. And so one thing that I keep hearing from different news articles and talking to people is this 2% fatality rate. Can you expand on whether it's still 2% or what that even means? Yeah, so the fatality rate that I've seen referenced is a fatality among confirmed cases. It's not a fatality rate among all the persons who become infected. That makes it a little more challenging and not quite comparable to some other fatality rates. So it's called a case fatality rate because it's the fatality rate or death rate among confirmed cases. And when we look at the healthcare systems in the countries that have had the greatest number of deaths, their healthcare system was at, um, so say in general, so say uh, in China and some of the other countries, they don't have the high level of sophisticated care and all the surge resources that we have in the United States. So you can sort of think of it as they have a different starting point. And so if someone there is ill, but they can't get access to oxygen, or they can't get access to some other sophisticated intensive care unit services, then um, uh, they're less able to recover from it without those intensive care unit resources that we're quite fortunate to have here in the unit when in the United States. And one thing I heard earlier today is that maybe it's even 2% of just the cases that end up uh, turning into pneumonia. Is there any truth to that? I'm not familiar with that level of detail, but it's um, listed 2% among those that are confirmed cases. And you might also ask, well, how does one become a confirmed case? Well, is that because you're sick enough that you end up getting testing? Um, and especially when we look at where the greatest number of cases have been, have been in China. And so it's a you know, definitely much more difficult for me to be able to have confidence in saying what's the decision making for people being tested in that country and is it they need to have pneumonia. I can't speak to that. Okay. Well, since you mentioned the testing, I know that there are at least now six people who have been tested in Maryland and one of them still pending. The rest have been um, negative. So what makes the health department in Maryland say, yes, we need to test you for this disease? So uh, it's based on um, having information from the healthcare provider and the individual patients. So it's a case-by-case basis, and it's determining whether the individual and the individual symptoms uh, meet the case definition for uh, testing. All right. And so one of the difficulties I've understood is that these symptoms are very similar to that of the seasonal flu that we're currently experiencing as well. So how does one tell the difference between I might have the flu or I might have this new coronavirus? Well, for an individual, um, when we're talking about the new coronavirus, um, risk, uh, risk is based on have you been exposed. And so if you haven't been exposed, then you have no risk. Uh, so that's part of it. Um, and here in the United States, while there have been cases, confirmed cases of coronavirus, and there have been some situations where it seems like it has spread in a community person to person, although still at this point it seems relatively limited. Um, but outside of all those areas, there isn't a known risk. So automatically that puts the rest of the areas where there haven't been confirmed cases, where there hasn't been person-to-person spread beyond those cases, puts people in a pretty low risk for having had exposure and then low risk of illness. 
And I understand that we might start seeing an increase in numbers as this uh, testing is uh, done at the state level instead of just all at the CDC. Can you expand on that at all? Yeah, so um, each day more information is coming out. And just like in the beginning where uh, the reports from China, it was thought that it started at one time and then more information came about that, well, maybe the first cases came up a little bit earlier. And it's not uncommon for that to be the scenario when there's some new infection, whether that's a virus or a bacteria, that uh, sometimes some of the early cases weren't recognized uh, because it wasn't on people's radar screen. Uh, and so looking back, you can say, oh, well, uh, maybe that person did have that travel. Maybe there was, maybe infection was spreading in the community in that location. That person had traveled there. They had a mild case. They didn't realize they were ill. And they didn't end up infecting anybody who got really ill, which um, and then if people don't get really ill, then there isn't all kinds of testing done to figure out what's causing someone to be ill. And one of the things that I keep seeing is people are talking about all those mild cases or asymptomatic cases. How does epidemiologists and public health officials, how do they figure out once they've hand, gotten a handle on a disease like this? All right, these are how many mild cases we probably had. Oh, well, that'll be something that only after we're on the downward curve of all of this and there aren't many new cases popping up that will have better information. Uh, and so we go through a, the public health approach to new outbreaks. Um, first, we try to contain all the people who we think are at risk. And so it started out really with that unprecedented um, uh, stopping the movement of returnees to the U.S. and stopping their movement and quarantining them. So even though they did not have symptoms, they were their movement was restricted. And that's really unprecedented. But that is a public health strategy that uh, if there are people who might have been exposed but aren't yet showing symptoms, and you don't know if they can spread it when they don't have symptoms, then an effective strategy is to control their movement. Now, at some point, it often ends up having to change strategies or strategies evolve based upon the scenarios. And this is playing out differently in different countries because their scenarios are different. Um, but as time goes on, if there's more community spread person to person, then at some point, if so many people have the infection, then our focusing on each specific individual who's a case and trying to find out who all they were in contact with and then ask those folks to stay away from others. At some point, we will stop doing that. And then what we'll be focusing on, and I would recommend everybody do it now anyway because it's good practice, but focus more on uh, what we call the community mitigation practices, so things that can help uh, reduce the spread um, in a community. So it's good for all kinds of infectious diseases, whether it's influenza or it's norovirus, uh, which um, begins with keeping yourself as healthy as possible, so, uh, which includes uh, good nutrition and also restorative sleep. Uh, a lot of it has to do with then also being mindful of what you're putting your hands on, uh, surfaces that are contaminated, 
And then how many times a day we rub our noses, we touch our eyes, and that's all ways that we're actually then taking that contamination on our hands and putting it right in right right into our body where like the like say for example the influenza virus it likes to reproduce itself or replicate right in the front part of our nose and so when we rub our noses we're putting it right there all right well since you brought that up one of the things i wanted to ask is do you have any tips for not touching your face because since people have been saying don't touch your face i've noticed i think in the past hour i probably touched my face 10 times just by accident well i was thinking about that this morning and so besides Uh, Let's see, one strategy I thought is we could sit on our hands, but that's not really so practical. Then I was wondering, well, I wonder if as an experiment, if we were to just, and I, you know, like say if you have, uh, it's wintertime, so have those, you know, mittens in your car or something. If you put your mittens on, then you'd immediately realize, you know, how often it is that you go to put your hands up to your face because you'll have a mitten uh, in your face. Uh, and we could try to um, help each other to recognize that as well, because it's done often involuntarily. But you could ask your friends and family members to please check me, mm-hmm. you know, if you see that I'm starting to do it. Um, and a, a big one is people shake hands, they hug each other. And I've found myself having to be apologetic, but I've started m- weeks ago, I do normally during the cold and flu season anyway, is to uh, let people know I'd like to shake your hand, but instead I'll do an elbow bump Mm -hmm. because it's cold and flu season. And I also add it's norovirus season all the time. Um, So trying to make some of those actions be normalized and not so, because some people... uh, I can tell had never heard of that kind of a strategy and are thinking, well, well, aren't receiving it as positively as uh, I intend it because I want to keep them healthy and not give them what I might be carrying around. So anyway, but some of those strategies that are good for us to do all the time. And if we get to a point where uh, there's spread in the community, or if Uh, or for individuals who might have to travel to a community where it seems like it's spreading person to person, those are um, strategies to put in place to reduce their risk of exposure. And is there anything else, like should we be running out and getting masks, or should I be stocking up on my Purell and hand sanitizer? Uh, So it's a good idea to have a normal amount anyway. And so if I were to say, well, ideally, aren't we using them all the time? So then you wouldn't need to buy it at a frequency greater than what you already do. But I realize it's easy for people to let some of these habits slide a little bit. Um, as, as we get more into this spread, because it seems like with the increasing community to uh, community spread person to person, it's uh, quite possible that we'll get to a point throughout the United States where we do need to be more concerned about person to person spread. Um, so then we'll want to take those personal measures. And I would recommend that people carry around their hand sanitizer, so the at least 60% alcohol uh, content. Uh, but that you carry it around. It's a good practice that you should do it all the time. Now, what I'm not suggesting, though, is that people hoard it and try to sell it at, you know, a price gouging amount. 
Uh, but a reasonable amount is what we should be doing all the time. And what about masks? Well, the, the masks, I th- we'll know a lot more after this because we have also talked about unprecedented as seeing people going out to buy the masks. And while it might seem like it's a good idea, it's not a complete protection. And it also may contribute to a false sense of security and could potentially place people at greater risk than what they realize. So the masks that people are buying, it's, you know, it, it can stop some droplets if somebody's talking to you. Um, if somebody's within three feet of you and they're talking and they spray on you. But if you keep your distance from someone, if you're six feet away from them, then you don't need that mask. The other is the mask. Um, so say they pretend, say hypothetically a mask then was coughed on. And so on the outside of the mask, it's got stuff on it. Well, then if you touch the mask, which people unconsciously also do during the time because they're adjusting it because it's uncomfortable it's hot, they feel like they can't talk right, they can't show their smiles, so all that. So people end up putting their hands on the front of the mask to adjust it. Well, now that hand's contaminated anyway, so it's not helping you. And then, well, what about your eyes? So people, are if they're coughing and uh, sneezing on you, well, it's getting in your eyes also. Uh, so the mask alone is not providing complete protection, and it could place you at greater risk because you think, oh, I've got the mask on them. I don't need to worry about anything. Well, actually you do. You still need to be concerned about the contaminated surfaces that your hands are touching, and then what you're doing with your hands. You know, might not be rubbing your nose as much, but your eyes are still there, and when you take that mask off, your hands are still contaminated, and in fact, from the outside of the mask, depending upon how you take it off, your hands are contaminated again. All right, so rather just wash your hands a lot, stay away from people. Yes, so if you can stay the, the distance of six feet, and it's good to think about um, how might you go about your daily business and doing what you need to do and uh, keeping your distance from folks. But that's what we say every year during f- cold and flu season is to keep that same kind of distance. And I know people have, you know, not everybody has felt that that's important to do. Um, I think... Many people, many more people will be interested in taking that advice and guidance um, uh, should we get to the point where we need to be concerned here about spreading uh, throughout the community person to person beyond just folks who have had a travel history. All right, perfect. So I know that there are six people. At this point, can you say if any of those six people were from Frederick County? Um, So the, um, the Maryland Department of Health is the one uh, is the entity in our state that keeps the numbers and um, consistent with the approach with many other communicable diseases where the numbers are small, they do not release the information down uh, below the state level. So for example, they wouldn't say what county because there's always the potential for um, people to figure out who, um, who they were talking about. And if the numbers get bigger, will we start seeing them decide to start saying by county? Mm, I can't speak for them. I I don't know for sure. Um, but I think our measures would end up, so for the general community, the measures would still be the same. For us at the health department with the information that we have, um, again, early on for individual uh, cases or even persons under investigation, we provide tailored responses for their 
for their individual situations, their case by case situation, because everybody's context, uh, you know, it's it's all different. So um, we provide individualized case by case guidance and recommendations and support, um, and that's what we continue to do throughout is um, look at what the context is, what's going on in our community, and what strategies um, would be uh, good to put in place to prevent the spread, and again, based on the information of what's going on in our community. And you mentioned the spread, and I'm hearing that there's, right now, it's like every, for every person who has the disease, they can spread it to about 2.2 people? Yes. So, it's not a whole, so say measles, for example, is for each person who's infected, they spread it to maybe 16 other people. So it's not that infectious, um, but it's still, again, something that humans haven't had prior exposure to. That's why it's called the novel coronavirus. And since we hadn't had prior exposure to uh, this coronavirus, our immune systems haven't built up um, and have ready-made a cache of defense weapons. Um, so it takes a little bit more time for our immune systems to, um, once they're exposed to the virus, to be able to build up a ready supply of immune fighting cells. And should we start seeing cases in Maryland where they actually come back positive and people start thinking, all right, I think I may have expo- been exposed to someone who had the disease. What should they do? Yeah. So then oh, when we get to the uh, Point. Well, we do have some people who are concerned now anyway, so that has come up. Uh, but especially in the scenario that you describe where, so say in Maryland, that there is um, in the community where it's known that it's been spreading person to person, or if someone has traveled to an area where it has been spreading person to person, then that uh, information is what they would communicate to their healthcare provider. Again, this is for people who have symptoms. So if they have symptoms and they have that um, uh, uh, experience of having been in a community where there's been community um, spread or person-to-person spread in the community, then that's what they would be communicating to their healthcare provider who would then be in contact with us at the local health department to provide individualized guidance. All right. And so with those um, people... You said they go to their health care provider. If they don't have a general physician, say they just moved here, can they go to urgent care or should they be going to the emergency department? Well, so this is based on how ill is someone. If someone needs, um, so it's the decision making that they'd make anyway. So this particular virus by itself doesn't necessarily mean someone needs a hospital level care. It's really the symptoms that they have from it. All right. And you, so you mentioned, so I believe it's fever, cough, and shortness of breath is, are the main symptoms right now? Yes. And some people have reported runny nose. It, it makes it very difficult because it's, they're very general symptoms. And so that's why talking with, um, why the healthcare providers will be in consultation with the health department because we're tracking as it goes almost hour by hour. So what might be modifications to um, the guidance in terms of identifying who's at greatest risk and therefore should be tested? Um, So the healthcare providers uh, would then contact the local health department. And with our knowledge of what's going on, then we'll be able to provide the best guidance. All right. I know this disease started, I think the first case was around like December 31st in China. It's been here about maybe a month. Um, 
in the past, you know, two weeks, what is something that you've learned about this disease that's helped you with preparing Frederick County that you might not have known two weeks ago or about a month ago? Boy, it's so hard to say because time, it seems like we've been working on it much longer. Um, but we haven't. I, hmm. I think the community, so it wasn't early on, it wasn't clear whether it would just die out. So when we talk about one of those other coronaviruses, the SARS virus, it died out. Of course, it had a higher death rate. And if you're a virus and you cause death in the organism you're invading, then it uh, limits the ability of that person to spread it. Uh, And so it just wasn't clear early on whether we would have much community spread or person to person in the community not associated with travel and where one person gets and one person might have been a traveler, but then someone who had contact with them uh, or with someone who was a confirmed case. And then that person is ill and then that person spreads it to someone else. So uh, I think that's been the one of the pieces of information that I had been looking for. And then unfortunately, we have seen that that is the case where it looks like it is possible for there to be person to person spread. Now, the next part that I'll be looking for is how sustained is that? So now if one, so for someone who um, got ill from either taking care of someone who was ill or exposure to someone who was a traveler, now or how many people might they be spreading it to? So that kind of thing to see how sustained might that person-to-person spread be, that's the next big piece of information that I'm looking for. And so I know that there was announced earlier today that there's now six deaths in Washington State from this. Is there anything that those deaths have told us about this disease? I don't have enough information right now on that. Um, I do understand that it's more affecting people who are on the earth like 30 and older, or at least 20 and older, more than children? Uh, yeah, so so older adults. And so what I did see earlier about um, w- one of the deaths was that it was in someone who was older and had um, some other health problems. And that is the report that we're seeing where most of the deaths have been, which is in China, is that it's mostly affecting older persons, less so younger persons. However, some younger persons have become ill. Uh, and some have also died from it. But the majority of the cases reported worldwide are in adults. Is it unusual that a disease isn't affecting as much those younger kids? Well, it is It is interesting, and I think that'll be one of the other areas where it'll be really interesting to find out what the rationale is. Is it the way the immune system is triggered, uh, and is it an overreactive immune system that adults have, or, or not as reactive. You know, in some cases, when we've had the situation before with some of the influenza viruses or like with the H1N1, some of the older folks were relative, uh, well, I wouldn't say, rel- I guess, relatively spared, but that's because their bodies had had some pri- thought that they had had an exposure to uh, another influenza virus, not the same one, but one that had some similarities that their immune fighting cells were still effective against that new H1N1 virus. And so it's each, each virus, it's interesting, and I anticipate that we're going to learn a whole lot more um, 
well, when we look back a year from now on this, we'll know so much more about coronaviruses and also about the human immune system. So I know this one is scary and it has a lot of people's attention right now, but when I was talking to Dr. Manuel Cassiano over at the hospital, he mentioned this might be something we have to get used to, that every couple years we see another disease that's new and scary. Is that something that might be true? Yes, that might be true. Uh, You know, it's uh, public health got its real big start. Uh, Health departments were established in the United States to uh, help respond to the infectious diseases, Um, infectious diseases from uh, that were occurring from the living conditions of the humans and animals and how close they were, uh, as well as in the food supply. And we've made a lot of strides and a lot of advances, but, you know, the viruses and bacteria are still abound. All right. Well, is there anything else that we need to know about the coronavirus right now? Well, I'm uh, glad for people who've listened this far into the <laughs> podcast. That's good that folks are staying informed and to, um, you know, start thinking now about what they can do to just you know, stay as healthy as possible and to think about if it uh, were to become necessary to um, have more uh, social distancing uh, in place. So how might they go about their activities, keeping their distance from folks? And if they were to be uh, symptomatic themselves, how might they go about being able to get what it is that they need? But that's the same advice I give it during cold and flu season as well. You know, when we're talking about some of the other things that they're doing, so we start off in public health is the surveillance, so understanding what's what's circulating out there. Uh, and then in addition to surveillance, then, then when cases are identified, then identifying those cases and performing the contact tracing. Uh, but then that occurs at the state and the local level here in Maryland. That would be at the at the local level, uh, and then providing evidence-based recommendations or, you know, with the best available uh, information at the time, make recommendations for how you can reduce the spread. Um, Those are the activities that are ongoing now. And, um, you know, uh, with community, with spread in the community, what would be, what is helpful is to have surveillance. So during the regular flu season, we benefit from having providers throughout the country, healthcare providers, who they have an agreement with the CDC that they'll test every so many people who come in with an influenza-like illness. And then they'll just send those test results off uh, or send the, the samples off to be tested. And so the CDC just has a then a way to have surveillance of knowing what's circulating in those communities. So does is the flu starting to be of people who have influenza-like illnesses? You know, what percent of them is it due to true flu? Uh, and so these surveillance networks out there, I'm looking forward to them having a more robust surveillance network for this novel coronavirus so that we'll have even better information about what's going, what's circulating in the community. Uh, in Maryland, it would uh, the CDC would work with the state and probably with the existing providers that are already signed up. I can't say for sure how they'd go about doing that um, because then that would require having enough um, uh, supplies 
to be able to support that activity and then also having enough lab capacity. Because right now, the priority, I would imagine, is people who are ill, you want to know what they have. So um, the testing is prioritized for people who are currently ill, although there is benefit to having testing of what's going on in the general community so that we have better information uh, to know whether we need to change or expand the risk categories. And that's where the surveillance is really helpful because it gives you, an, it's a, if you will, an early warning system. Just since you mentioned the testing, um, I know that there's only been a couple cases in Maryland, but I'm hearing that the test comes with a pretty hefty price tag on it for people. Has there been any truth to insurance is not covering the test very well? I am not familiar with that. Um, the CDC does not charge for its testing. I'm pretty sure about that. And and in the state of Maryland, um, when the state performs the tests in their lab, they're not charging. I do understand that some private labs are developing their test, you know, are developing a test for it. And what private labs do, you know, that's it's a business, mm. and I wouldn't be surprised if they charge for that. Um, but if the samples are being uh, tested at the CDC or if they were samples that were being tested in the state of Maryland, we wouldn't be charging. The health department doesn't charge a collection fee. Now, if you go to your health care provider's office, they you know, typically charge you the exam fee. They might charge a collection fee for or an administration fee for the uh, specimen collection. All right. Well, Dr. Brookmeyer, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. To stay up to date on the latest coronavirus information, you can follow our coverage at fredericknewspost.com. Local health officials are also recommending people stay up to date by visiting health.maryland.gov or cdc.gov. Before we go, Katrina Pereira, our food and education reporter, joins me now in the studio to talk about her latest food review. She offers us a new place to visit for when we are looking for something hot to eat. Okay, Katrina, so where did you go on your food review this week? This week, I went to Viet's Aroma Vietnamese Cuisine um, off of Jefferson Street. Well, that sounds pretty good. And how was it? It was. It was very good. Um, I'm giving them 4.5 stars. Is that your highest that you've given yet? This year? I think so. Yeah. All right. Perfect. So what was so good about this restaurant? So Vietnamese cuisine is, I find that it's excellent because it's simple. Um, a lot of like simple ingredients that kind of come together to create these like really flavorful and aromatic dishes. And Viet's Aroma does that really well. They really let the ingredients kind of do what they do best. All right, perfect. So what are some things that you got to try? So most people, when they think of Vietnamese food, they automatically think of pho and um that's what Viet's Aroma does really well, these like big hot steaming bowls of pho. Um, but they also have a couple of the th other things like vermicelli noodles, which is another Vietnamese staple. Um, they have spring rolls. They have fried rice. They, you know, do a lot of different dishes, but all with that really kind of comforting, um, simple Vietnamese flavor. All right, perfect. And for those people who have, haven't had pho before, can you just describe really quickly what it is? Sure. So it's soup. It's a essentially a bowl of soup with um, rice noodles in it. It's kind of like ramen, actually, if you think about it. It's kind of like the Vietnamese version of ramen. So you got 
noodles in there. You got some thin slices of steak. And then you got a whole bunch of like onions, cilantro, scallions. Um, They give you toppings to go with it. So you can put some bean sprouts in there. You can put some mint in there if you want. And it's all these like raw, fresh ingredients besides the noodles and the meat. But like all these herbs and vegetables that kind of go into the soup that make it this like really refreshing kind of um, homey bowl of soup. So perfect for the weather that we had, you know, a couple days ago when it was like 30 degrees and freezing. Absolutely. I love to eat it on like a colder rainy day. And so you mentioned the meat and I've had pho before. And from my memory that I, when I've had it last time, sometimes the meat is not always cooked all the way. Yes. So a lot of places do it like a medium. Um, they cook their steak like a medium. But I found with Viet's Aroma, they actually cook it pretty well done. But it's still soft. It's not like a chewy or rubbery kind of well done. They do it really well. So, you know, if you don't like medium or medium rare type steak, then you can get it at Viet's because they do it fully cooked. So if you don't like steak, are there chicken options? There is a chicken option. And there's also a seafood option, which I tried, um, which was very good you know it has a little bit more of a fishy taste going on but um it's pretty good all right what about if you're vegetarian so if you're vegetarian um there's a there's other dishes you know um there's vermicelli that you can get with kind of like just vegetables um there's fried rice obviously and there are a couple of other dishes on the menu that you can certainly get all right perfect and what are we looking at in terms of price so it's incredibly affordable. Um, a bowl of pho is going to cost you between 8 and 10 bucks. Same with a bowl of vermicelli. Perfect. And when you, you're eating the soup, it's a pretty hearty soup that fills you up. Oh, absolutely. And I can guarantee you, you will have leftovers. Perfect. So it sounds like a really good deal. Oh, totally. Like the best deal. <laughs> All right. Perfect. Well, is there anything else that we need to know before visiting? No, I think that's it. It's a little bit of a small space. It's kind of tucked away, um, but they do do carry out if you want to do that. But um, yeah, I highly suggest checking it out. Perfect. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Frederick Uncut is produced by me, Heather Mangilio, and edited by Graham Cullen. We'll see you next week. 